Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Hey listeners, today we have a very special guest, Edie. By now you would have already heard the interview with Jackie. Jackie was given up for adoption at birth and today we have her biological mother. This interview will be a little different due to the sensitive nature of the content. She will tell her story in her own way, in her own words. Please be advised that the content of this episode may be disturbing to some. Edie is currently homeless She's had five girls, four of which were adopted, and one that she raised. Edie has been through many layers of trauma. Let's begin. I used to have what I called the voice. The voice is something that I hear only in extreme situations that's potentially very dangerous. And I've heard it since I was a little kid. This voice I always listen to. It never tells me to do something that seems logical. It always tells me opposite of logic. When I met Jackie's dad, I met him only once. We found out I have DID, which explains why I don't remember his name or very much about him, because I was under extreme duress. I had ran away for no reason. I just became a runner. Perhaps I should start at my childhood. It explains a lot of the reasoning that I had. The first time that I heard the voice, I was like above the ground and I saw what I thought was an ugly green thing that was a woman. This woman, she was laying on the ground and she had a baby in her arms and she passed the baby on to someone and they took the baby inside. For some reason, for many years, I thought I was the baby that was passed on. Not until I was eight did I find out what had truly occurred. But I see it's winter time. I see a shed in front of me, a house to the left, a big oak tree to the right. You don't go into the front door. You actually go into the back door, and that's right into the kitchen, and then the living room, and then there's three bedrooms, and then the bathroom. And I can see this. I've seen two horses that were loving on each other's manes, and I see all this, but I'm above it. I really couldn't understand this. The voice, we went over to look at the woman underneath the car, and two men were yanking at her arms as hard as they could, and she wasn't budging. And the voice told me to go to her now. And I told the voice, no, because I was scared because this big green thing on the woman. And I didn't know what the green thing was. And it had her captured. And I knew she was in a lot of pain. Then the voice told me again, very loud, very sternly, go to her now. And that's the end of me hearing the voice. But when I asked my mother when she was eight, when she was ever fat, and then I told her about the memory, and she said it was impossible for me to have remembered that because that was the day I was born, and she had slid underneath the car, and 
she could not get out, but I know distinctly I saw it. And this oh was God. the first time I heard the voice. And then I knew I was actually dead or at that point was just now going into her body. My daddy came home. He was very violent. He beat somebody every night. We had a lineup. And mama had to cook the dinner and not burn it and be in the lineup so that he would figure out who we was going to beat that night. And it was the first person that moved. I remember one time I was less than three. I was outside and I had left the trike in the driveway. But daddy came home early. He saw it in the driveway and he threw it. He's screaming for me. And I'm terrified. And the voice tells me to stand behind this tree. But it's a Charlie Brown tree. I'm actually even taller than the tree. And he tells me to stand there and not to move. Tears were going down my face. And I stood. And I did not move. And then I would open because he's like, he had to have seen me. But he did not see me. He never saw me. He looked straight at me several times never saw me. So I learned after that, regardless of how ridiculous what the voice tells me, do it. One time my brothers, they were trying to kill us girls off because there was not enough food and they were hungry. So they were trying to kill us off, but make it not look like they're trying to kill us off. The boys take us to a two-story house, put a mattress on the ground, The boys thought I was a tomboy and that I was extremely brave when actually I was not. I was terrified, but the boys would tell me to do the opposite of what I wanted to do. Pretend to want to jump off this two-story house. Pretend you really want to be swung off and thrown onto a mattress. Pretend it and make sure they believe it. So I went up there and I was terrified. I'm terrified of heights. And the voice told me to relax and to pretend that my body is asleep. Do not get tense. Don't tense at all. This is what the voice is telling me. But I do exactly what the voice told me to do. And they swung me back and forth three times, getting higher each time, and then threw me off. And I landed on the mattress and bounced down the hill and hugged a locust tree. But Janica acted natural. She was fighting them all the way. And she tensed up, and she missed the mattress altogether. She landed face first in the ground right next to the mattress. Not Not a broken bone. But the voice told me to stand up and ask to be thrown off again, which was the last thing I wanted. Oh, my God. I get up and I say, oh, please, please, throw me again. Throw me again. They call me a stupid, dumb, stupid kid. No. But they thought I was brave. My brothers had me in every major appliance except the oven. The washer, they turned on. The dryer, they turned on. The freezer, they did not turn on, but it was the kind you cannot get out from. As a kid, though, all this fake bravado that I was doing kind of ended up whenever the older kids, Jimmy was not participating in the trying to kill us off until later. I guess they finally explained to Jimmy why they were doing it. And this is all before I'm three. These are memories at three and before. Thank you, Lord, I lived through it. My daddy was extremely mean. 
Daddy came home to do the lineup. And that night, something was different. He was really mad, just like he's always really mad. And we were in the lineup, but I was the first to move. And my brother, John, he stood in front of me and said, no, don't beat her. I'll take it. And then Raymond, my stepbrother, he stood in front of him, said, no, do me, not him. And everybody offered to take the beating for the other. And he got so tired and worn out trying to decide who he was going to do that night that he passed out before he hurt anyone. When he was passed out, everybody was just being little church mice so that he didn't wake up. I went into the living room and he was a carpenter, or at least he had one of those waste things with all these tools on it. Remember, I'm three, and this tears my heart up. I grab his hammer, and as hard as I could, I hit him right in the middle of his forehead, right above the nose, as hard as I could. I only hit once, and then I ran into the kitchen, and I told everybody, it's okay, we're all safe now. Daddy can't hurt us. I just killed him. Wow. It tore up my mommy, too. My mama left my dad that day. He had to leave the stepchildren there, and she was sad about that. All five of us kids got on the bus, and this was the first time I ever seen mama away from the house, and it was the first time I noticed her entire face because I had never really seen anybody other than mama, my brothers, and we always had bruises, I guess. And when we got to her mother and sisters, her mother sat there and called her a stupid witch for leaving him. Why did you leave him? And mama stood. Now mama's only 4'11", but she stood against all of her sisters and her mama as she stood firm on never going back to him. I was so proud of mama. When we were there, they would sit at the kitchen table, all the aunts and uncles and grandma. They would all sit and drink bathtub wine that was made in one of the basements. And then afterwards, my cousins were getting beat every time they got together. And they got together like almost every night to drink. I said, you know what? None of us can help that these grown-ups are going to drink and they're going to beat you up. I said, but there's something we can do. We can't fight them, really. We can't run away. We can't do this. But we can pee in their wine, and they'll be having to drink our piss. Oh, my God. While you're getting beat, you'll be thinking you drank my piss. Everybody started drinking a lot of water, and we had to go to the bathroom a lot. So we were going up and down the stairs all night long. And every night we'd just go, and we would pee in that every night, and they drank it. I never told them until I was like 35. Nobody ever spoke about bathtub wine. My cousins have said that that helped them greatly to have that knowledge in their head. I had other plans that I devised. And I was always getting the older kids in trouble. And then three up to five is Randall, my stepdad. And five years old, I was placed into foster care. I stayed until I aged out. I think the backstory helps you realize what decisions were made and why they were made and my reasons are how I think. 
when we were with my stepdad, Randall, I just thought the world revolved around daddy. I called him daddy. I loved him. But the truth of the matter, which was not even revealed until I was 40, when the memories came back, I do not understand how this can be done. But I made up what was happening in my head that was quite different than what was really happening in the world. See, I thought he was wonderful. He was actually grooming me. He made me watch my brother and sister do sexual acts in front of me. I had no sexual acts happened to me, but I didn't know there was anything wrong with that because he was watching pornos and it just all was kind of normal. And I do believe that he was going to sell me. And this is where I tell you, you got to look at the story right to know that God really is great. It was the sheriff of Nognoster that kept coming over to visit. Evidently, I wasn't ready yet for, but evidently the deal was he wanted me to know how to do everything, but not have experienced anything. He wanted to be the first experience. Oh my God. It was the only man that kept coming by outside of Jimmy Dale. Janica remembers more of this part than I do because I do not have the memory because I was not hurt. Jimmy blocked it completely out. I made up a wonderful daddy that didn't exist around five. Two of my cousins, one was pre-pube and one had already turned to grown-up type. Two of my cousins came over and they wanted me to go and run the railroad tracks with them. Mom let me go unless my older brother, Jimmy, came with me. By then, I had turned into quite a bully. I was very mean. I would use everything around me to hurt you. And the boys were bad. Jimmy couldn't stop them. Both of them raped me on the railroad track. I come home, and I started acting like nothing hurt. But this day, I came in, and I told Mama I needed a Band-Aid. I need a Band-Aid bad. And she was washing dishes. And she goes, in just a minute. And I go, Mommy, I really need a Band-Aid. She goes, well, you're just going to have to wait. And I go, Mama, I really don't think I should wait. And she finally turned around and she saw blood pouring down my leg. She ran me to the hospital where the doctors looked at me and they go, your daughter is not a virgin. You're going to need to find out who did this? He goes, this is also menstrual blood. Your daughter has started her period. And if she could get pregnant the next time somebody does something to her like this. So here I am at five and, and my boobs are developing and the hair under my chest and hair on my legs. But I'm definitely still just five. DFS came. They took us away. When they took us away... They made us sit in a room, all three of us. We didn't know what was going on. One by one, somebody took Janica, and they took her to the one door. And then they came to get Jimmy, and they took him out another door. And then I saw Mommy going out, and she's holding Randall, and she's bawling. And I'm like, I know something's bad now. It takes like three of them to get me out of the room. And I was like, no, I'm not going with you. I'm going with mama. They get me into the car 
and they said that I was going to live somewhere else. It was up the hill and two drives up from Mama's trailer. And I said, well, okay, I'll stay here, and that's no problem. See, I had no problem leaving Mommy, and I had no problem leaving the stepdad, but I wanted to be with my brothers and sister. I was having trouble being without them. But I said, can I just at least go down and visit them? And they said, no, if you even so much as see your mother, you'll never get to see your brother and sisters ever again. And this is how my foster experience started. I was in kindergarten at this time. I had peed the bed. I thought I lost the home because I peed the bed. I changed overnight. I was being moved so much, I would do anything just to keep a home. The voice didn't always tell me what was going on. We assume that everything is all our fault. I was just moved from 13 different homes between the age of six until I was seven. I had at least 13, and I couldn't understand why nobody could like me. Then I got into a foster home when I was seven. The second I saw her, I saw this woman. They sent me to this foster home. Her name was Jane Bragg, and his name was Bruce Bragg, and they had other foster kids. When I opened up the door with the caseworker, this woman who's 300 pounds, I wasn't a bit scared of her. I saw her, and in my heart, it clicked. Home is not a place. It's a person in a place. She felt like home. Just love at first sight, not bad love. I just loved her. First thing I asked her is, what do you want me to call you? Mom, Jane, Mrs. Bragg, what do you want me to call you? She goes, call me whatever you want. And I said, okay, Mama, can I go outside and play? It just seemed so natural. But during the whole time that I was with them, every foster sibling and the foster dad were molesting me. I swallowed it all to be with Mama. I'm insecure. I'm very shy at this time. Mommy taught me how to hug. She went to hug me when I first was there, and she put her arms around me. I stiffened up, and she said, it's called a hug. We do it to show how much we care about you. And she was the only one that did hug me. And when she hugged me, it was like, everything's okay. Aww. It's all right. I love this woman. And I wasn't about to be the one to hurt her. I kept my mouth shut. All the foster siblings left, and it was just Mommy and Nicole and Bruce. And Bruce was only doing his thing, like, once every so month, a month or so. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the regular. But then, I don't know, something changed. And he started coming to my room, like, once every two weeks. And then it became once a week. And then we moved to Holt Summit, Missouri. And it became how he woke me up. It was every morning. And I was starting to not take it so well. I had tried to tell people what was going on. I told my sister the last time I got to see her. That was in 1979. And she was going to be moving to Washington State. She had gotten her open heart surgery when she first got into foster care but now she had scoliosis and she gained three inches in one day and they adopted Janica my sister I never got to see her 
until 1986. Every morning, Bruce would come in through the bathroom, and Jane saw it one day. Mama saw it. Mama saw him do what he, she looked at me straight in the face and then shut the door. I looked down, and I knew Mommy saw it. So maybe Mommy is going to stop Daddy from doing it. Well, two weeks later, nothing had stopped. She never mentioned it to me, and I was really embarrassed, but I didn't say anything. He stuck a finger in. The thing of it is, is I didn't remember the rapes until I was 13. So I didn't know why I knew that something really bad was going to happen, and this was the beginning of the really bad, because now he's not just touching. He stuck a finger in, and it hurt. I knew that I didn't want the next stage, whatever that thing was that I didn't know about. I knew that it was going to get really bad now and that I needed to tell and got to get somebody to hear you. So I went into the school and I went into the principal's office and I slammed my books down as hard as I could. And I said, you will listen to me. I am not lying. Please, all I want you to do is to make it stop. So I told, I told on him. And they listened. Thank God. They kept me after school. And they wouldn't tell me what they were doing. They just kept me there. Finally, they let me go home. And so I walked home. And I get to the house. And Mama answers the door. And she smacks me in the face. And calls me a liar. And then tells me to pack my things right now. No caseworker there. And I went into the bedroom, and I was bawling, and Nicole came, and I go, oh, Mom, Nicole, Mommy, don't believe me. Mommy, Mommy saw it. Why does she, why did she smack me? I know she saw it. She knows it's the truth. And I couldn't understand it. And so I'm packing all my clothes. They tell me that I'm going to leave. And then about an hour later, the caseworkers finally come, and they picked me up, and I told them, Oh, I lied. I lied about it all. Let me just go home. Let me go home. Bruce had admitted that he'd been doing it. And his punishment was one visit to the counselors. That was all that ever happened to him. Oh, my God. I mean, of course, Jane and Bruce divorced. I was placed into the foster care with my real brother, my youngest older brother, my favorite brother, Jimmy. I was put into his foster home, but I had failure to thrive because I lost my mommy and I lost my sister and I mourned so much. I was so brokenhearted because I wanted my mommy and my sister. I'm so grateful for this year that I had with my brother, Jimmy. He was so good to me. He was so kind and he was so funny and he taught me about music. So I gave me a big old thing of all kinds of music. And I listened to music all day long. And there was foster sisters there, Linda and Brenda. They were twins. And they were slow. And we were girls. And the girls were to clean the house. We were to do house things. And we did our chores. The mama was a diabetic. This is where my problem with eating started. And she said that we would get fat because the boys worked hard. And they needed more food than we did. I was so hungry. They would joke about me being chunky chink 
because of the rice. We were allowed on rice night to eat as much rice as we wanted. So I would eat until I was full. So they would call me Chunky Cheeks. I was very slender, athletic. One night, I just laid down. And this was the night I actually became afraid of the dark. They ran beside me. They never saw me. They ran everywhere around me. They never saw me. I realized that things could hide in the dark. At nighttime, they could hide out in the open in the dark and you not see them. It's like I feel really awful about who I am because I hurt mommy and my little sister and I don't have them no more. DFS decides they're going to send me back to Jane now that they're divorced and she's alone because I can't thrive without mama. But the second I saw her, I knew it. My mama was dead and this other person is here. She is not mama. She totally was a thousand degrees. There was nothing mama left. There was no home. She was not home. She was a stranger in mama's body. But I thought maybe, maybe we could find mama again. I can get her out. But I couldn't. And that summer, a boy, a girlfriend named Buffy and myself, went over to this boy's house over in Grandview. Her boyfriend was there too. They were kissed. I was with Larry, but Larry wanted to go further and I was screaming no and I was fighting and I was trying to push him off. And Buffy and the other boy came and the boy said, hey, you need to stop that. It's obvious you don't want to do that. The boy wouldn't listen and they left the area. I didn't tell mama when she came home. I didn't tell her because I was embarrassed because I had kissed the boy. But it traumatized Buffy so much. Buffy told her mama and her mama called Jane. She lost her standing. They described the whole encounter. It was obvious it was in a very bad date rape. Jane grounded me for the summer. I was like, but I did nothing wrong. She goes, you went over to the boy's house. You're grounded for the summer. I didn't listen to her. I didn't obey her. I started to get wild. The next year, the next summer came around and I was 12 and I decided because I saw that my natural family were alcoholics and drug addicts. So I said, all right, I'm going to be hooked to cigarettes and coffee because I didn't think there was any choice in it. I didn't know they had the choice of not becoming. I just thought it had to be. So I thought, I'll choose what I'm going to be addicted to. I'm about 12. I'm in sixth grade now. I had a friend named Cheryl White. She lived over by the Waffle House, and I was walking barefooted in my swimming suit. It was a hot pink, beautiful, but it was my fault because I looked very sexy. I was pretty. And this guy pulls over and he asked me a question. I couldn't hear it. I ended up standing there longer. And he goes, do you want to ride? Then my feet were already burning. I said, sure. It's only a few blocks. This is my first encounter with Jeffrey Moreland. He rides right past where we were going. He takes me to a church parking lot. He had locked the door and I didn't know how to get out of the car. I knew he was going to hurt me, but I didn't know how to get out. 
So he dealt with me is what I call it. He dealt with me. And when he was done, I put my clothes back on. I was hurting real bad. And then he casually takes me right to Cheryl White's house and drops me off where he was supposed to the first time. I tried to put a smile on my face, but, you know, to pretend that that didn't just happen. And I'm just like wondering if I really did just go through a bad thing or not. Because, I mean, this guy's calm. I get in there and she asked me what it was. And I just busted out crying and I told her. And her mama made me go to the police station and tell. They did the whole rape kit thing. And, and he was questioning me. Jane was right there. I mean, they were grilling me. They were not acting like I was a victim. I did, however, lie a little. I said he had a gun because I was so embarrassed that I hadn't fought and that I didn't know how to get out of the car. Why didn't you get out of the car? I didn't want to say I didn't know how to get out of the damn car. The cops are saying it's impossible. This whole thing didn't happen because if it had happened, you would have been beat or you would have been killed. And I went, but it did. It did happen. And I knew there would be proof in that examination because I hurt so bad. They had to have thrown something. And they're really, they're going after me. I only see it like in like law and order when they're trying to get somebody to confess to a murder. I just couldn't understand it. I mean, they're grilling me and for two hours and Jane is just sitting there. Well, they come back with the supposedly from the, the kit and he comes back in and says, well, according to this, it doesn't look like you've ever had sex. There is no sign of trauma. I was waiting to stand on the, the medical and they're, they're lying and I know they're lying. So I stood up and I go, okay, I get it. You want me to say that I lied. I said, okay, I lied. Can I go home now? And so Jane grounds me again for lying to the cops. But this time I don't care because I don't feel safe going outside. So I'm all right. Over the next school year, I meet these wonderful kids. We were like a pack. So there were six of us. And we'd walk to... Independent Center, that's a seven-mile walk every Saturday. And we just walk around the mall. We were best of buddies. And then one day, I go over to Michelle's house, and Michelle's daddy's there. For some reason, Michelle's not in the house. And he starts talking to me like, have you ever had sex with a grown-up man? And I go, nope. He goes, are you attracted to grown-up men? And I went, nope. He goes, how would you like to make some money? I go, sure, I would like to make some money. He goes, if you can have sex with a grown-up man, I'll, I'll give you $2,000. We'll film it. I said, I couldn't do that. He goes, well, I can hypnotize you. And he hypnotizes me. I'm easy to go under. But he kept trying to make me do something that I would not do. And I couldn't move my body. I was under. I came back, but not before he had hypnotized me to have an enema by him. Somehow he hypnotized me to be okay with getting an enema. So he did give me an enema. I don't understand the whole deal at all about that. Then he said, if I didn't do this, that he would go to my house and get my little sister and make her do it in my place. And this was Nicole, Jane. She had changed, but Nicole was 
she was my responsibility and now she's in danger just because of me. I decide that I'm going to pretend that I was crazy, that I was having nightmares of harming them, blah, blah, blah. I needed to get out of her foster home. I didn't want to say I wanted to get away from Nicole. I just couldn't do it. I just make it where they had to do it. And then I finally accumulated that with putting the smallest little fire in the floor and calling my old caseworker, my friend. And I said, Kay, I've been having these bad dreams and I'm going to harm, you know, and I just started a fire. Please come and get me. And so she got somebody right there to give me. And they put me in an institution to evaluate me. And I'm thinking, all right, Nicole is safe. And I'm safe because I asked who else is going to know where I go after this. And she said, only the judge, the stenographer, the caseworker, and my lawyer. Nobody else knows. I get told that I'm going to go to this girl's home, evangelical children's home. I'm happy because it's a home. It's going to be safe. And as it turns out, I did really well in that setting. I loved helping the other girls. They didn't have near as many issues as I did. But since their issues were nothing that I had not gone through, I could help them. I was thriving. And you had one month of orientation. I'm happy as a lark. I'm ready to live the rest of my fostering career right here. I want to stay right here. I had the best counselor and the house mamas, and I just didn't want it to ever change. But the first day after I got off orientation, the first phone call was from him. So I'm scared to death. He goes, so are you ready to do this? And I go, see, I went from one person being in danger because of me to now there's 12 girls. How do I protect the 12 girls? And I said, yes. I'm ready. I'm, I'll be out there at one o'clock in the morning. I will wait five minutes and I will be at this stop sign. Wait five minutes and then I'm turning my ass around and I'm going right back in the house. I'm pretty sure that I knew that they were going to kill me after doing the film. I was reasonably sure. So I thought that way I can save the girls and it's just me, her. Anyway, I go to the stop sign. It's one o'clock. And I wait, one car that drove by in that time, and I stood, and I waited, and I made myself seen. I waited the five minutes, and I turned around, went over to the office porch, sat down, smoked a cigarette, snuck back into the house, and told on them the next day, because I needed to protect the girls, and I didn't want to die. But I have to go to Grandview Police Department, and they think I'm a liar because it was only a year before. So they made me get a lie detector in which I passed. I mean, it passed. I was telling the truth. This was all the truth. There was a man out there trying to get children into porno films and had followed me to my next home. And they refused to prosecute or go after him. And it was because I was an unreliable witness. So this man, he got away with it. Oh, my God. I went back to the home where they told me that I could only stay a year. This is when I started to become a runner. I started running away. Nobody was going to throw me away like trash. I will find somewhere where I'm needed and wanted. I was tired. 
I knew I belonged there and they were going to throw me away. I ran away three times. I remember it all. But on the third time that I ran away, I found my own foster home while I was out. That's why I was searching for someone that could become my foster parent. I found somebody from my natural family that was only part of my natural family by marriage. And she was not mama type. She was like the one that bakes the cookies and everybody goes to this house not to see the kid, but to see the grown-up. That's the kind of lady she was. She was my Aunt Beverly, and I was sent to live with Aunt Beverly. They allowed me to pick my own foster home. She had to do a little paperwork, so I had to go into a group home downtown, and that's when I really met some bad people. I was with her. Even though I loved and adored her, I had gotten the run bug. I had gotten the bug to run away. I ran away from her and joined the carnival. She was as smart as I was. She knew where I was. Even though I waited two weeks before I ran away after the carnival went. And I was found very quickly. They sent me back to her and she knew that I was having trouble. She moved and I came back to Warmsburg. When I got back, they wanted to punish me for running away to make sure that I never ran again. So they put me in the big boy jail, the regular jails in isolation. I was claustrophobic. I was terrified. I got DID, that's dissociative identity disorder. What it is, is some part of you that can take it will come out, but you may not have memory as long as they're out. It was right after they took me out of the jail and then we were placed into a meeting the boys and girls that were in this group, and we were all in trouble with the law somehow. I was wailing in there. When that meeting was where I met the boy that is Jack's dad, I know that he was either Indian or Italian looking. He had olive skin and dark jet black hair and blue eyes. See, it's all fuzzy because I don't think I was myself because I came out and I was just real pale. And I couldn't hardly talk. I couldn't hardly walk. I was in deep shock. I think there was more than one visit. And after the second one, he lived in a trailer park and I just followed him. I knew all he wanted was sex. And I don't know why I didn't care. I asked God for someone that I could love and that could love me back. I said, let me have a baby, something I can love. I want to love something. I really wanted that love something that wouldn't reject me. I wasn't thinking, really. But the Lord granted me. We only did it the once, and he granted me a baby. I went to the doctors, and he comes in the room. He goes, well, you're pregnant, and then turns around and leaves. I'm 16. I didn't understand what I was asking for when I asked for a baby. And I knew it right that second. Oh, my God, he answered my prayers. He's let me have a baby. Oh, my God, how can I tell Aunt Beverly? Oh, God is so good. I went home, and it took me two hours to say two words. And she goes, what is wrong? And she was so scared. She goes, it is much harder for you just not to say this. Please come out and say it. I'm pregnant. And she goes, hallelujah. Let's go out and celebrate. I mean, that woman could have crushed me. I was so blessed. 
she was so happy because she could never have a baby. She tried. And she was so happy for me for having a baby. She was so kind. She took me out for my very first lobster dinner. She said, whatever you want to do, we shall do. I said, I think I want to keep it. And she goes, that's fine. If you want to keep it, keep it. If you want to give it away, you can give it away. And she goes, if you want DFS, and I go, DFS is not getting any part of this because they had found so many pedophiles for me during my fostering career. I was like, they will never get a finger on this child. It was at the beginning of the school year, and we told the principal that I was pregnant. And he goes, well, you cannot go to school. You have to drop out. And I go, oh, no, 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 no. If I drop out, then there is no hope that I can get this child a future. The principal was irate. See, I wasn't even showing yet. He had told the teachers and everybody to try to get me to quit. I was harassed every single day. And I asked God, I go, dear Lord, no matter what happens, do not let me have this baby before school's out. Let me be in their face every single day. I will not quit. I was having doubts on keeping her because I got to thinking, what future could I give her? This is a gift from God given to me to do the best I know how to do with it. I have to give the best gift back to the world. I don't think I'm up to that. I don't know how to be a mommy. So I started thinking about adoption agencies. I called a whole bunch and I had a feeling they were selling the baby. And I went, mm-mm, no. I'm very spiritually minded. I am not religious. But Catholic Charities, I called them. I asked them if they sold the baby. How did they deal with the money part of the baby? They go, that usually the parents. Uh, I said, I'm on welfare, so they don't need to pay anything for my medical. I just didn't want my baby sold. I wanted her not to be in a Catholic home. So I filled out some paperwork. And I said, I haven't made my mind yet. I said, Lord, I am not smart enough to make this choice. You tell me what to do. That night I went to sleep and I woke up and the first phone call of the day was from Catholic Charity. And I sat there and I go, oh, thank you, Lord. You're telling me to give her up. I said, yes. You tell those parents to get ready. They're going to have themselves a baby. And she goes, you don't have to make a decision yet. And I said, I have made my decision and I will not change. And so I went to bed that night and the boys came to me again. Oh, this was so sweet. He goes, if you give her to me now, I will give her back to you before she turns 21. That's all the boys said. And I said, okay. So be it. And that's all I said to the voice. This baby's going to go to a family. It is not mine. It's God's baby. And God has a family for her. And I'm so happy for it. And because they wanted me to get an abortion. Up until three months, they were fighting. My dad, everybody, they go, this baby, if you give her up for adoption, she will hate you. She will love the day you were born. And I was like, what? did this baby ever do to cause me to murder it? I said, no, this child will be born. I go in for an ultrasound and they see huge cysts on both my ovaries. 
and they tell me that I have to have an operation in order to get rid of the cyst or it can make me sterile for the rest of my life. And I said, would the baby live through it? And they go, no. And I said, then no. And I looked over because there was one person in the room that had the authority to go over me. And I go, Aunt Beverly, don't force me. And she goes, you're a grown up. You're grown up enough to make this decision for yourself. And then I looked at doctor and I said, no surgery. About a couple of weeks later, I went to the restroom and I noticed that there was red blood in my panties. I ran out of the building and I ran all the way down to the doctor's office. And I go, doctor, I think I'm having a miscarriage. Please, please save the baby. And so he looked and he did the ultrasound. He goes, the cysts on your ovaries have burst. That's the blood from the cyst. Your baby is just fine. I was like, oh, the way I figured it, I saved my baby's life and God let the baby kick the cyst and save my ovaries, save my life. They were getting crueler and crueler by the day at school. They made me take a parenting class. The lady started a debate on adoption versus keeping the child for teenagers. She made it extremely obvious that she totally despised the idea of anybody giving their child up for adoption. She started it, got the kids all agitated and all ugly, and left the room. I had to stand my ground as they tore into me after the teacher left the room. I said, no, I will let this child go to someone who is succeeding, and she will come back and she will be proud. I left school that day. I don't get angry. The only two times I did, I blacked out and people got hurt. But I made it to the end of the school year. The day after school was out, the very day after I had the baby. Catholic Charity said that I could have four days with her. I could still change my mind. And I said, I am not going to change my mind. I said, do you got the family? Are they happy? And they go, they're very happy. While I was in the labor room with Jackie, that very day that I had her, someone in Warnsburg had thrown their baby into the garbage. So they checked to see all the teens that were pregnant. But of course, I was in the hospital. But on the day you were born, Jackie, somebody killed their baby. And threw it in the trash. They just didn't know what a gift they had. And the lady across the hall had had a miscarriage. I wouldn't go and see her to give her comfort. I don't know why. They kept trying to encourage me to do that. I sat and I held you and I burped you and fed you and changed your diaper and prayed little prayers of how I thought your life should be and how I wanted you to be healthy and happy and grow up with two parents that knew what a parent does. You were so beautiful. I was in love with my little, I named her. I said, no child should ever spend a moment without a name. Her name was after my two sisters, Janica, my real sister, and Paige is Nicole's middle name. So her name was Janica Page Mead the whole time that I didn't know you for 21 years. That was your name. In my mind, you were Janica.
Sydney was so beautiful. I loved her. I loved her so much. The last of my story of her in her youth, one month to the day after Janica was born, Jackie was born, my brother, my favorite brother, Jimmy, had died and he drowned. He actually died of hyperthermia before he drowned. About two weeks before he died, he came over to my house to visit me at Aunt Beverly's and he said, Edie, if you could not die naturally and you had to die somehow, how would you want to die? And it can't be in your sleep. And I said, well, that's easy. I would drown because I love water and water is my friend. And he goes, oh, not me. He goes, I would hate to feel like I was trying to get a breath and couldn't. He goes, I want to freeze to death. You just go to sleep and you never wake up. And he died of hyperthermia. That was a month to the day after Janica was born. Jackie, I was out there and see my name was Edith Mead. My brother's name was James Welch. You would never really see James Welch's name and say, oh, that's the sister of Edith Mead. <laughs> you know, because their last names are different. While I was at my brother's funeral, and Janica, this is the first time I've seen my sister since 1980. It was 1986. I miss my sister. I still miss her. I said, God, I know you're not punishing me for giving up my baby because you told me to give her up. You said you would give her back to me before she's 21. So I know that this is to help somebody. And right at that moment, the lady from Catholic Charities walked in the back door. I turn around. Janica's right next to me. And I look and I go, that's the lady that I gave my baby to. Or that, that's the lady from Catholic Charities. And she goes, I saw your brother's obituary in the paper. And I got this in the mail today. I thought you would like it. And it was a letter from the adoptive parent with a picture of my baby one with her awake and one with her asleep. And I went, I looked at it and I said to her, it, I was just overjoyed. And she goes, I, I just started crying. I started to get giggly and happy at my brother's funeral because this was confirmation that I did what he wanted me to do, that my girl is okay and she's happy. She's going to be happy. She's going to have a chance. I am going to make her proud of me. Before she meets me, I'm going to make her proud of me. And for 21 years, I had to believe that I wasn't crazy, that I really did hear God. I met her the day before her 21st birthday. He made me wait to the very end so that he could tell me and show me that when I say it, I mean it, even if it doesn't look like it. And even if it's the last second, I will do what I said. And he did. I met Jackie. What was that like? Oh, I was terrified. Not of Jackie. I was terrified of the parents. That they would look at me and, and know that, that it didn't make a difference. The sacrifice, I didn't make anything of myself. I was just so ashamed. I was ashamed of me, and I was so happy that they took care of her and that she didn't have to go through the war I went through. I felt really kind of judged by the mom, critically. I felt it. 
daddy was not that way. He was, I'm here for my girl, is what I felt from him. And Jackie, I felt, I'm going to try to make her see that that I am somebody, somebody worth knowing, that you want to know me, that you want to be my friend, and that maybe once her mama passes away, she would still have a mommy. I'll wait my turn. Maybe she'll love me like I know this sounds bad, and I hope Jackie doesn't get upset. And I look really her heart, and she will like me and love me. Because I know the difference between a mama and a mom. And right now I'm Edie to her. I hope someday I'll be a mom. And then maybe one day she will look at me and find home like I did with mama. Your story really brought me to tears, and you were so vulnerable and so beautiful. And Is it inspiring, too? Oh, my God. So inspiring and so touching. And you're so brave for reconnecting with her and and being so selfless. And I, I really think you're such an amazing, brave woman to reconnect with her and want that relationship. I, I have so much admiration for you. I know I gotta wait for it, but I hope they can get over that BID. Until I was diagnosed, I, I was sick from probably, I really do hear the voice. It's not my imagination. It saved my life. It's not fake. And that's why I forget so much. You remember a lot, too. Do you remember the day that you had Jackie? Yes. Yes, I do. She is a lovely girl. I am so proud that she had an opportunity. You know what my daughter Amanda said? And it makes me so sad. She goes, I really am sorry that Jackie ever found us. And it's because she thinks that's bad. She's ashamed of me. I'm not loved. I'm barely tolerated. Even if I have to wait till I die and they all die to get the love from them. I know what love is. And I know what it isn't. Until my kids are ready. I'm sure there's other children that are ready to be loved already. So I do. I never thought it would be like this. is so hard. The only thing I could do for my children is make sure they're not around you. I believed it. I have one question for you because you talked okay. about how you went to like this group foster care situation. And that's where you got pregnant? Yes. Yes. He was one of the troubled you. Could you recontact that group? Like, would they have record of him? They would have a record, but I can't even remember what the group was. I know that it was done at the police department because I was just taken out of a cell and brought into a room with other kids. At Warrensville? Warrensburg, Missouri. Or was that in Granville? No, it was Warrensburg. Did you ever try to recontact them? No, because this poor boy didn't need no more problems. And that was the main thing that they were wanting to get the name of the daddy. And I had forgotten because of the stress of the situation. And Jackie thinks I remember more. I don't. I just remember that one group. There were approximately eight of us kids and one group leader, and they were trying to get us to talk, and I couldn't talk. 
I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm so mad at myself for not remembering his name. Has Jackie ever tried to call that police office? I don't know. And that's how it is in my life. I get lots of really big punches. That guy that raped me at 12 raped me again at 42. But he had turned into a murderer and I caught a murderer. I didn't tell very often because, my God, nobody gets any trouble. How did he find you? Oh, he didn't look. He was hunting for a victim. And he passed me three times that day. Three times. That's when I got really sick, where I couldn't work no more. For my girl, I, I'll try to look up that street at least. I can tell him about I mean, It was either the second or third. I believe it was second trailer to the right. Wouldn't that be crazy if he was still there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would love to give her her daddy. You're amazing. Thank you so much for your courage, and thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. So, Daddy, what did you think? What an amazing story of what love can be. I think you really have to understand the whole story to see how God can move in very mysterious ways to give you an understanding of what a little baby is worth. And in Edie's case, with every horrifying abuse that she experienced and her brothers and sisters experienced, that she wanted to be able to have a baby that she could love and that would love her back. And she was just a young girl, 16 years old, and then realized that she wouldn't be able to take care of this baby. And even though she spent two or three days with this baby, uh, she instantly loved her, a beautiful girl. That's Jackie, your friend. She just prayed to God, had a very strong connection. I believe she has a very strong connection with God, even though the circumstances of how she grew up, you wouldn't want to wish on anyone. And yet, she made a beautiful baby that she gave away to give her an opportunity to rise out of tragedies of her own life, hoping that she could have an opportunity to have a better life and to someday come back and be able to love her for what she did. What an unbelievable story. For more information on adoption, go to bettercalldaddy.com. This episode is part four of four. We speak to Jackie, her adoptive mom, biological mom, and her sister that her biological mom raised. Better Call Daddy show is now sponsored by Chicago Lavish Glass. I have taken my own kids to make glass jewelry. I'm obsessed with the rings and necklaces. Custom glass jewelry for holidays, showers, weddings, celebrations of life, and gender reveals, and more. Now you can use the code BCD for 20% off. Like, better call daddy. I've made the glass, and I can tell you, it's first class. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.